thanks very much. And good morning. Um, it's, very, uh, it's very good to be back for another week. Uh, for this second week of Advent, there's uh, many of the same faces, I think, as last week, which means I didn't bore you away or scare you away after one week, so that's, that's good. Um, yeah, as, as Becky said, we are into the second week of a series called A People Prepared for the Lord, and in that series, we're looking at some minor characters from the book of Luke. Um, particularly for these first few weeks, we're looking at the story of Zechariah. And what I said last week was that in the, the narrative of Zechariah, you see Zechariah go through kind of three main stages, from doubt, through discipline, to deliverance. And so last week, we dug into doubt. And this week, we'll, we'll look at discipline. And what we saw last week was we were introduced to Zechariah and his wife, Elizabeth, and that they were righteous before God, that he was a priest serving faithfully, but that also that they were doing so in the midst of the trial of childlessness. And I actually read just this week a, an Old Testament scholar refer to childlessness in the Old Testament or in Jewish culture as the epitome of hopelessness. Um, so that's the situation that they found themselves in. And so Zechariah in that situation goes into the temple to serve as a priest to, to pray for the people. Um, and he's met there by the angel Gabriel, who announces to him this incredible proclamation um, that his, his prayer is going to be answered, his personal prayer is going to be answered, that he's going to have a son, but that also his son is going to run before God and prepare the way for the Lord. And then we closed the last verse that we looked at last week, verse 18, was where he, he doubted the angel's proclamation to him. He doubted whether God could give him a son, and we dug into that doubt. So that's a very quick recap of last week, but it allows us to, um, yeah, to get into our text today. And I'm going to read, starting in, in verse 18, just to give us one verse to get into the text. Um, yeah, Luke 1, 18 says this. And Zechariah said to the angel, How shall I know this? For I am an old man, and my wife is advanced in years. And the angel answered him, I am Gabriel. I stand in the presence of God, and I was sent to speak to you and to bring you this good news. And behold, you will be silent and unable to speak until the day that these things take place, because you did not believe my words, which will be fulfilled in their time. And the people were waiting for Zechariah, and they were wondering at his delay in the temple. And when he came out, he was unable to speak to them, and they realized that he had seen a vision in the temple. And he kept making signs to them and remained mute. And when his time of service was ended, he went to his home. After these days, his wife Elizabeth conceived, and for five months she kept herself hidden, saying, Thus the Lord has done for me in the days when he looked on me to take away my reproach among the people. And then we're just actually going to skip to the next time that we see Zechariah in Luke 1. So we're going to skip to verse 57. Now the time came for Elizabeth to give birth, and she bore a son and her neighbors and relatives heard that the Lord had shown great mercy to her, and they rejoiced with her. And on the eighth day, they came to, the circumcise, to circumcise the child, and they would have called him Zachariah after his father. But his mother answered, No, he shall be called John. 
And they said to her, none of your relatives is called by this name. And they made signs to his father, inquiring what he wanted him to be called. And he asked for a writing tablet and wrote, his name is John. And they all wondered. And immediately his mouth was opened and his tongue loosed. And he spoke, blessing God. That's as far as we'll read today. Let's pray together. Yeah, Father God, I just pray that you would be with us, that you would open our eyes to this text, um, that we wouldn't shy away from asking any hard questions or from any piece of what you have for us, that you would teach us what it means to be disciplined by you, um, and that we would take comfort in your care, in the care that you show us. So be among us today, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen. So I think the first question that we might ask, or that even that we should ask in reading this passage, is why was Zechariah made mute? Is God acting strangely? Why does God respond to Zechariah's weakness and Zechariah's doubt with this rebuke? Is God being ungracious or even unfair to Zechariah? Is God being harsh for no reason? And these are good questions to ask, because when we ask tough questions of Scripture, we can get to know God behind the words. And rest assured, with our passage today, as we understand the end for which Zechariah was made mute, we get a deeply comforting image of God's fatherly care for Zechariah and for us as we face difficulty and suffering in life. And our, our key point for today, the thing that I hope that you repeat to yourself on the drive home, um, the line that I hope sticks with you is, is this. I think it'll come up. Discipline brings lordship, and lordship brings peace and righteousness. Discipline brings lordship, and lordship brings peace and righteousness. As it says even in the title of this, this smaller series on Zechariah, um, that Zechariah was moved from doubt through discipline to deliverance, but that discipline, God's discipline in his life, was the method through which he was delivered, the method through which God became Lord of his life. And the way that Zechariah even arrives at composing the joyful song of worship that we'll get to look into next week is through God's discipline in his life. So discipline brings lordship, and lordship brings peace and righteousness. There's a, a poet by the name of George Herbert. He's actually a 17th century Anglican minister, but he's a wonderful English religious poet. And he wrote uh, a poem called Affliction Three. I think we have that as well. Yeah. The first stanza goes like this. It says, my heart did heave and there came forth, O God. By that I knew that thou was in the grief to guide and govern it to my relief making a scepter of the rod. Hadst thou not had thy part, sure the unruly sigh had broke my heart. And it's a beautiful poem, and that's just one stanza of it, and it actually goes into um, a really wonderful understanding of what it means to, to suffer as a Christian. 
But even just in this stanza, the part I want us to pull out, the part that's bolded there, the image that I hope you remember is making a scepter of the rod. This image of the rod of discipline being turned to lordship. What is a scepter? A scepter is a symbol of the king's power, a symbol of the lordship of the king. And so the rod, the disciplined, turned to lordship. That as we cry out to God, as we turn to God in difficult circumstance, we see that he is bringing about his reign in our lives as our king and as our lord. So discipline brings lordship, and lordship brings peace and righteousness. There's a a key text, you could say, in the New Testament that actually pulls from the Old Testament, from Proverbs 3 as well, on God's discipline. And so we're going to read that this morning to better understand Zechariah's narrative. And it's from Hebrews 12, starting in verse 4. It says this, In your struggle against sin, you have not yet resisted to the point of shedding your blood. And have you forgotten the exhortation that addresses you as sons? My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor be weary when reproved by him. For the Lord disciplines the ones he loves and chastises every son whom he receives. It is for discipline that you have to endure. God is treating you as sons. For what son is there whom his father does not discipline? If you are left without discipline in which all have participated, then you are illegitimate children and not sons. Besides this, we have earthly fathers who disciplined us and we respected them. Shall we not much more be subject to the Father of spirits and live? For they disciplined us for a short time as it seemed best to him. But he disciplines us for our good, that we may share his holiness. For the moment, all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant. But later it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. So two key points, two aspects of God's discipline in our lives from this text in Hebrews. And the first one is right up there at the, in verse four, it says, God's discipline is intended as an aid to our struggle against sin, to our sanctification. It's an aid to our being made holy. And within that, that its end is the peaceful fruit of righteousness in our lives. Right, we can understand that the goal of God disciplining Zechariah, and the goal of God disciplining us is the joy and peace of being under the lordship of Jesus. And there's a line in this passage that it says, it is for discipline that you have to endure, which in English almost, <coughs> excuse me, in English doesn't almost compute, right? We, we think of discipline as almost purely negative, as something with a, a heavy connotation. But the text says it is for discipline that you have to endure. The word discipline, um, or the rather the word being translated as discipline, is paideia in Greek. Um, paideia, which can also mean education uh, or instruction in piety. It's, it denotes a moral education, a character education, a training. And so it is for discipline that you have to endure because God's discipline is intended as an aid to our struggle against sin. That's our first point from this text in Hebrews. The second is this, that God's discipline is a sure sign of his love and faithfulness to us as his children. That God's discipline ought to be a comfort to us. 
Psalm 23, it's a very well-known psalm, says this. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside still waters. He restores my soul. He leads me in paths of righteousness for his name's sake. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. Right, and there's that rod again. Why does David mention both the rod and the staff? If you just read it quickly, it might sound like just the same thing. Um, but I think there's, there's a real difference. I think maybe the staff we can picture as the shepherd's weapon against the wolves, and the rod is the rod of discipline that keeps the sheep in line, keeps the sheep in line on the narrow path through the valley of the shadow of death. And I think that that discipline ought to be a great comfort to us in the same way that it was for David. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. So discipline brings lordship and lordship brings peace and righteousness. So with that context from Hebrews, which we gathered quite quickly, but with understanding that discipline is intended as an aid in our struggle against sin, and that God's discipline is a sure sign of God's love and faithfulness to us, let's look back at Zechariah. As Zechariah speaks faithlessly, faith, faithlessly, sorry, he sins. He fails to believe that God can or God would accomplish for him what he said he would in giving him a child. And so God's response to Zechariah's faithless speech is to take away his capacity to speak, and actually probably likely to hear as well. Um, the Greek word is somewhat ambiguous, so we, we can know that it was likely both speech and hearing from the context. It's as if God says to Zechariah, with what you have heard from me and with what you have spoken, you have been faithless. So I will take away your speech and your hearing and you will watch as I accomplish what I said I would for you and through you. I don't know when the last time you went bowling is. Um, you know how they, they have the bumpers that come up? I think it's a little bit like God puts up the bumpers for Zechariah. He said, you, you, you weren't doing it on your own. You weren't making it all the way down the, the lane. So let me help you out. You, you used your voice to speak faithlessly. So I'm going to take it away. And then, of course, as we read, approximately nine months passes as Elizabeth gets pregnant and then as a son is born and the son is healthy and ready to be circumcised and, and named. And the crowd signs to Zechariah, which is one of the ways that we know that Zechariah was also um, deaf as well as mute. The crowd signs to Zechariah to say, Elizabeth is kind of going crazy she wants to name your son John. Like, no one's named that in your family. It's outside of the custom of how we name kids. What's going on? And Zechariah writes on a tablet, not, I name him John, but his name is John. Subtle difference. Not, I name him John, but his name is John. Because he affirms that he was named a long time ago. He was named by God. 
he was given his name in the proclamation from Gabriel that we looked at last week. His name is John. Zechariah recognizes that everything was accomplished for him as God said it would be. He comes under God's lordship. He assents to God's truthfulness and faithfulness in his life. His doubt has been turned to faith. And he's given his speech back. It's an incredible story. And we get to look at, it's almost like the climax of the story when he speaks again and blesses God. But where does that leave us? Because you could very well be sitting there thinking, well, that is, that's great for Zechariah, that God moved in Zechariah's life in this specific way. But I'm still just here. And I think you'd, you'd be for, forgiven for asking that. What I hope that we can realize today, where I, what I hope that we get to is recognizing the discipline of God in our own lives. And I want us to see two ways that that crops up, and they're big categories, um, but that we experience God's discipline both in difficult external circumstances in our lives and in internal restlessness in our hearts. So we'll take those one at a time. First, the discipline of God in external circumstances. What do I mean by that? I think I, think I mean all of it. I think I mean everything from uh, a hangnail to the leaky basement that just keeps leaking. I mean your car breaks down. I mean that you can't find the job. I mean you can't find a house you can afford. And then some of the really hard stuff, sickness or debt or brokenness in family. And just to be clear, just to to clarify, I'm not asking you to take every difficult thing in your life or in the world and just neatly wrap a bow around it and say, okay, that's God's discipline. We're all good. We don't need to think about suffering anymore. That's, I'm not trying to brush off all suffering or difficulty in that way or to neatly package it away. But here's what I am asking, that when a difficult circumstance arrives in your life, when something that you trusted in or something that you loved is stripped away from you, consider that God might be using that circumstance to draw you nearer to him, to produce in you a greater peace and a greater righteousness, or even to produce salvation, that he might be bringing you through a temporary trial to give you something of immeasurably greater value. And that's a difficult thing to reckon with that God would use difficult circumstance. But more than even that, to to go one step further, more than God just using difficult circumstance, as if the world is just this utter chaos and God occasionally steps in to make the best of a bad situation, I think that we, we ought to do the difficult thing and consider that sometimes God actually brings about those trials brings about adversity, to break down our pride, to break down idols in our lives, and to turn us to him. To bring you away 
from the love of a world that is fading and broken to humility and reliance and worship of an eternal God and an eternal reward in that. And that's a lot. <laughs> that's a lot. I think it's easy for us even to have struggle in that, to struggle to reckon with that reality. And I think that if we are struggling with that, that we may have lost touch, we may have lost perspective of the ultimate good of eternal life with Jesus or of the ultimate suffering of eternal life apart from God. Yeah. So sometimes I think God disciplines us in external circumstances in order to bring us to him. Second point. Discipline of God in internal restlessness. The conviction of sin. And I think that we all experience this. We would all recognize this maybe every day of our lives or often in our lives. Because I don't think we all experience what Zachariah experienced in losing our physical voice. But we do experience God's hand of discipline in our hearts, which the Psalms, in particular, often describe as an inward silence. And I'm not sure that's entirely coincidental. I think that the discipline of God in Zechariah's physical silence could be a symbol of the discipline of God in the inward silence that we feel in restlessness and anxiety, depression apart from God's presence. That in some way what, what happens to Zechariah physically mirrors what we go through internally. Let's look at a couple examples of that David in Psalm 38. He's describing the heavy hand of God's discipline and conviction in his life, and he says this, but I am like a deaf man, I do not hear, like a mute man who does not open his mouth. Psalm 32, another example, internal restlessness of sin in the heart of David. He says this, for when I kept silent, my bones wasted away through my groaning all day long. For day and night, your hand was heavy upon me. My strength was dried up as by the heat of summer. So here's where I, I want us to, to get to. I want us to recognize the grace of God and the nearness of God in the emptiness and the restlessness that we feel after binge-watching Netflix or Crave or Prime or whatever it is that you watch TV on. Not that TV is all terrible. But I think that there's a grace of God that allows us to be dissatisfied spending our time or our money or our lives or our hearts on things that don't honor God. Or more seriously, maybe, I'm not sure if you've ever had a moment at church or in a service where you just stopped singing for a moment, where your tongue felt heavy or you were afflicted with a silence of the heart, a place where praise to God felt ingenuine, 
And I just want to say that it might just be the grace of God in your life, preventing you from insincere worship, allowing you to turn to him and to thirst for him. As David does in Psalm 42, he says, my soul thirsts for God, for the living God. There's a story in John 4. Many of you would be familiar with it between Jesus and the Samaritan woman at the well. Um, and I won't, I won't read the whole story, but uh, in essence, Jesus is, is at a well in Samaria. He's traveling through Samaria, and his disciples are off in town getting food, and he sits by the well, and a Samaritan woman comes and is drawing water. And Jesus asks her for water, and she's kind of like, well, I'm a Samaritan woman. You're a Jewish man. We're not really supposed to be interacting at the moment. And he says, well, if you knew who I was, you'd, you'd ask me, and I'd give you living water. And she says, what do you mean? Like, the well's right here. Are you better than Jacob who built the well? And then Jesus says this. He says, everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again. But whoever drinks of the water that I give him will never be thirsty again. And the point that I want us to see this morning is that when we try to quench our thirst with things other than God, and it doesn't work, that we're left thirsty. And I want us to, as we think of God's discipline in our lives, as we think of that thirst as a result of God moving in our hearts, I want us to be grateful for the grace of God in that thirst. Recognizing that if God loved us less, he would allow us to be satisfied with less than him. And if God loved us less, he would allow us to be satisfied with less than him. Where the Psalms picture the weight of sin and the restlessness and conviction as David says, when I kept silent, my bones wasted away. The book of Proverbs says this in chapter 3, verses 7 and 8. It says, be not wise in your own eyes. Fear the Lord and turn away from evil. It will be a healing to your flesh and refreshment to your bones. And I love the fact that bones, the image of dried up bones versus refreshed bones. That when we turn to God, when we drink deep of the water that Jesus has to give us, when we turn to faithfulness, even in times of restfulness, restlessness, that we're satisfied in Christ. And satisfied like nothing in the world can satisfy. I'll say it one more time. Discipline brings lordship, and lordship brings peace and righteousness. I hope that we can leave today grateful for the grace of God in our lives, both in bringing us through difficult external circumstances and bringing us into internal restlessness. So there's a part of Zechariah's narrative, and this is where I want us to close today. The part of Zechariah's narrative where he writes, his name is John, where he assents to faithfulness, where he, he writes something down on the tablet. And the question that I want to close with is that, is just this, is there something you need to write down 
on the tablet like Zechariah, right? Is there some way in which you need to assent to God's faithfulness and recognize his sufficiency to save you and to fully satisfy you through any circumstance? A pastor in the States, Timothy Keller, he often uses the, the image that our idols, the things that we're really trusting in, are the things we fall asleep thinking about. Are we spending this Christmas season coveting some material blessing, some relationship, some item, some idol, instead of recognizing and knowing deeply that the Lord is our portion and that to know that Jesus came for you is to lack nothing. Are you living under some shame or guilt, some persistent sin? Do the words of David, when I kept silent, my bones wasted away, resonate with you? Is there something you need to acknowledge to God or to confess to someone in your life? So the way I'd like us to close the sermon time is I actually want to give you some time to reflect on some of these questions just for God to speak to you and for you to speak to God. So I'm going to open in, open in prayer and then I'm going to leave uh, a little bit of time of silence and then I'll, I'll close again in prayer. So pray with me. God, I ask you to give us clarity, to show us how you are moving for our good, both internally in our hearts and in our external circumstances. I ask you to send us your spirit to convict us concerning sin and righteousness. I ask for your presence here to speak a word that we might know you better.
Oh, Father, thank you that you discipline us in your love for us, that your spirit convicts us and that life in a broken world moves us to seek after you. So, Lord, would you continue to discipline us? Would you grant us restlessness apart from you? And where necessary for our peace and our holiness, would you present us with difficult circumstances to sanctify us? We know that you are the gift of Christmas and you are the gift we seek. So would you sanctify us in this season? And Lord, where you are already disciplining us, help us not to sit in that silence. But as Zechariah assented to your truth and turned from his doubt and sin, may we turn from our doubt and sin. And may our mouths be open to praise you with exuberant praise this Christmas season as we experience the deep satisfaction and rest that comes from drinking the water that you give and from knowing that you came to save us. We thank you that you are so good to us. In Jesus' name, amen.